1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Peter.
1: And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
0: All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tommy?
1: Well, today we're going to look at submarine warfare, okay, which has been around for a while. We're going to talk about some of the primitive subs that had some, like, mixed results, Um, even pre-revolutionary war, but that's kind of when uh, submarine warfare kind of starts, the history of it kind of starts, Um, all the way up until modern era, right? They really become... Big time in World War One, World War Two. Like the Germans definitely do a lot with the U-boats. Kind of the difference people talk about, I guess, difference between U-boats and submarines, and all the way up to where they are today. This the impact that they have, and it's something that's probably not talked about as much. I would say submarine warfare, Um, but it's probably the advancements are huge when you look at it.
0: Yeah, I actually just read somewhere some article that the belief is that if there ever is another modern war, submarines are going to or have already more or less replaced actual battleships. Like battleships, supposedly battleships are obsolete now. Yeah. Well, they became obsolete carriers. with aircraft
1: carriers, but yeah, yeah, but submarines too, especially with like the when you when they mixed, well we'll get to it but when they mix nuclear power with submarines, that's it. Like yeah. they become these like end-all-be-all weapons basically. And then Russia has the Doomsday subs which we'll talk about a little bit.
0: But if you know, it's kind of crazy. I mean, again, I guess it makes sense that that's considered fast. But they said the fastest submarine – and when I read this, it was like, ooh, they can travel up to speeds of 40 knots, the new most renowned submarines, which is – 40 knots is about 46 miles per hour. And I'm like, eh, I don't think that's that fast. But then I yeah, think about like the size of these the suckers sizing, where they're thin, underwater like, going against yeah. the pressure of water, then I'm like – all right, all right, I get it. I get it. Yeah, right? they're over,
1: some of them are over 500 feet long. Like, I know, huge. I know. Yeah, so they're like they're cities.
0: Basically. Although I could never be on one because I'm completely claustrophobic. Like, I, dude, elevators are a struggle for me. So just even thinking of getting into
1: You're not going to be a submariner anytime soon. No, never.
0: There's that submarine next to the USS Intrepid in New York City that you could, like, go in and check it out. Like, you could take a tour of it. I remember I went with my kids and I literally like sent my little kids by themselves to go through it. Cause I couldn't do it. Some random person was like, Oh, I could take care of them. And like, I think, I think my older one was like, what? 10. My younger one was like six. I'm like, no, no, they got it. Cause they wanted to go through it. I just couldn't do it. I like <laughs> sacrifice my children because I would not go through a submarine. To yeah, I
1: remember going, there was one, it's still there. Kind of, I forget where it is, but the USS Ling, remember my grandfather take me when I was a kid, It got destroyed during um, one of the hurricanes but it's still, like, in the water or something like that. They wanted to raise it, but it's just...
0: Oh, it's, in New Jersey, yeah. It's yeah. New
1: Jersey, yeah, but it's all rusted out. But it was basically like an old-time, like, World War II diesel sub. You remember going in there and just how, like, even as a kid, how small everything was in there.
0: So, oh, yeah, yeah it's no way,
1: tiny. But obviously, the ones they are still tiny, but they're big in comparison to the ones. But some of the ones that the very first ones, some of the early submarines, are definitely going to be super tiny. Um, Yeah,
0: I mean, I think the first submarine, I mean, before you get into submarines, uh, would you consider the Diving Bell a submarine?
1: Well, that's where it's getting to. Like, I found there was some um, submersible. So it's like submersible versus submarine, right? Like, the idea of being able to, like, attack your enemies through, like, underwater, it's, like, been around for since, like, almost warfare, right? yeah, yeah no, like
0: bc like before yeah. christ we're talking like, about, yeah. like they're
1: talking they're trying to figure out ways and stuff like that because like the stealthness and everything of it and there were stories and legends like you have the mongol poet amir um Kushora, talked about about 2000 years ago he talked about um, to, yeah, about 2000 years ago how um, alexander the great descended a, um, into the sea using a, like a diving bell during yeah. the sea- siege of tyre in 322 bce so you have some there you also have like in the 1500s um, William Bourne designed a prototype for a submarine. They don't know if it was ever built because he was kind of using, like, technology they might not have had at the time. Um, yeah, he so drew
0: it out, I think. Like, yeah, I, they drew it
1: out and he was covered with leather. They know that during uh, the time of King James in the sixteen in 1620, they were actually designed and built some sort of submersible, and they tested it in the River Thames. But it was just – they were just too advanced for their time. It was beyond the limits. They couldn't find ways of having people under there for long enough, getting a far distance, um, measuring where they're going, telling where they're going, and also providing enough oxygen was a was a problem.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, they've been trying to, like you say, they've been trying to do this for thousands of years. The siege of Syracuse in 415 B.C., uh, Is actually one of the most well-documented instances of early submersible vessel, right? Yeah. And that was during the Peloponnesian War, and you have historical accounts that describe divers using these primitive diving bells. And what diving bells are? They're not submarines by any modern sense, right? They're. No, they're not think of like a, yeah, like I mean, it's in the name, diving bell. It looks like an enclosed chamber of like a bell, big bell. And when it's lowered into the ground, the air pocket develops at the top, and divers would lower the bell into this water, trapping the air and inside, and that allowed them to breathe while submerged. And these bells would then be open at the bottom like a bell, uh, enabling the, these divers to exit and re-enter at any point. And while submerged, they, they would walk with these bells. And undertake tasks such as inspecting the hulls of ships or cutting um, maroon ropes, so on and so forth, or even like affixing devices to enemy vessels. Again, this is four fifteen BC, like beginning of like trying to figure out how do you go underwater and use uh, some form of a submersible. And that you know, and but the real the real first successful one, and again, when you look at the history of this, this goes on. Many countries try this, but the real successful one actually happens. In the U.S. and that's the turtle, that's right. right? USA
1: baby, yeah. right? Yeah, so it's basically yeah, it's called the turtle. And there is some actually historians will argue it was never even built, but it was a small design. It was made of basically just like um look almost like a remember those old like Fair. cartoons Wasn't it like it, it like an old like it like a barrel basically those old cartoons like Bugs Bunny and stuff like that like a barrel. But did have like a diving hatch like it did have those sorts of things an airlock and it was um, supposedly employed or used in 1776 against the HMS Eagle. Um, there's no British records of the attack, but the basic idea was it was more or less what, gonna hold like a mine in front of it and just kind of like ram it into, bore holes into the hull, the hull of an enemy ship.
0: Premise here is, so this is designed, a turtle design in 1776. Again, it looks like a big egg, right? And it's yeah. designed by American David Bushnell, and it was only supposed to accommodate one person and the whole point of the matter was is that the United States or the new United States, whatever the United States, yet, we don't have a Navy to fight against the British Navy. So, no, so you have
1: to think of some other way. Exactly. Like so this tactics. was like
0: American American ingenuity, exactly, right? Like, how do we fight against the British? So oh, the idea yeah, was, it was like
1: this was guerrilla tactics in, in the water, basically.
0: Literally. Be like a bicycle inside, and they would literally turn uh, this propeller by just using sheer human force. And supposedly this turtle was used to attack as you mentioned, the HMS Eagle. But again, a few stories that vary here. One is that it made it close enough, except it like for some reason couldn't actually put that detonation charge on it. And the other one is that the guy that was piloting it and was Ezra Lee, actually when he was submerged down to get to that British ship, again, this is 1776, guys. Uh, they said that he literally got exhausted trying to pedal this thing in yeah. the water to make it. So like he never actually really made it close enough. And no one really to... knows. But did you see what happened with the people that David Bushnell, uh, Bushnell's supposed like descendant, Jesse Bushnell? They made a replica of the turtle and they called it the acorn. And then what ends up happening is they're trying to prove that you could use that to get near a ship. And it just so happened that Queen Mary was stationed in New York. And these guys literally tried to get close to it using its replica and they almost made it by like a police uh, patrol boat stopped them. And they're like, what the heck are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're just trying to test history, see if this was actually possible, which is kind of crazy that, you know, they did build
1: it and it did float. There's writings from Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, even George Washington saying like this thing was, you know, an effort of genius at the very least. I think that's what Washington called it, effort of genius. There's just too many other factors that are going in place. Plus what they realized too is they said about, about, 36 40 minutes of air trapped in there right yeah but when you're like exerting so much energy it's basically like a bike to like propel the you're using more oxygen yeah so that was another kind of like unforeseen issue probably that could have uh, hampered the turtle's effects But like for american history it's talked about as one of yep. the first successful attacks or at least the first time the submarine was used in wartime Yep. at least in with, 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 in with America yeah
0: the next one that I, I saw that like history of submarines before we get into actual warfare with them is the Nautilus uh, which was designed by a very known American inventor named Robert Fulton who was really big into uh, Robert Fulton steamboat all that stuff yeah. right but in 1800 he uh, got the French Navy to invest money in his newest design of the Nautilus and this was the first ever du- dual propulsion of a submarine model which is what they all are now Dual potion means that there's something that propels it forward underwater and there's something that propels it forward above water and what he designed the above water it actually had a sail so it was if you look at images of this it's like a mini submarine that is a sailboat basically when it's above water yeah
1: and they're the ones that kind of look like submarines now like that longer cylinder shape yep like they, and, they kind of abandoned that acorn turtle shape from the previous one. Yeah, you
0: no, know, this is like supposed to me- meant to be like cutting through water. Streamline, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was, you know, that was supposed to be like the first like modern design, again, modern by 1800 standards. But apparently, like the French gave up on the experiment and Fulton kind of just gave up on the idea as well and went to do and work on other things. Yeah. Ships. Yeah. And many different countries tried, really, going back and forth. Oh, yeah, Russia's
1: doing stuff, right? Um, various experiments with um, ones in South America. You have ones going on again. The French built another one, 1863. They're trying to – so it, it's out there. The technology is there. The problem is it's not where it needs to be to really make this totally feasible. Because most oh. of them are still human-powered. Exactly. Well, well then the you get
0: problem. to the Hunley, though. We have to mention the H.L. Hunley during the Civil War. Yeah,
1: American Civil War is also when you see – Kind of like a, I want to say a jump in submarine technology, but it, it's when they're talked about a bit more. Yeah, like when they're using combat again.
0: It was two of them, right? The Hunley yes. was the one that was designed by the Confederate States of America. And then you have the Alligator, which is designed by the Union. Studying the Hunley, I think the first time it actually, it, it sank a lot, right? That's my one thing that I noticed reading about it. They said that the first time it, was, it went on a test run in 1863, it sank killing five members of its crew. Then they like picked it up from the ground underwater, fixed it up, and then sent it out again. And it sank again, killing all eight on their second crew, uh, including Hunley himself, the guy that actually designed it. February of 1864, the Hunley successfully attacked and sank a 1,200 ton U.S. Navy. It's the fir- first submarine to ever
1: sink an enemy vessel. So that's yep. what kind of like that's what the Hunley is known for, why it's still talked about. Um shortly you afterwards, the hungry sank and lost the entire crew. Yeah, like coming back, it sank.
0: It sank. Yep. Yeah. It was found, though. It was found in 1995 um, yes, 1990. and it raised in 2000. You could see it in a North uh, Charleston, South Carolina museum conservatory thing.
1: It's kind of cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was going to say, there's been a lot of, like, again, throughout the years, I guess we're not going to, I don't want to go into too much detail, but throughout time from the 1863 onward, there's more attempts, right? So they're building them a little bit bigger build Like the Chilean government used a submarines war against Spain, but it sank with all 11 crew members in 1879. You have a few, a few other ones coming, uh, being built by the Swedish, believe it or not. They're building some. They're actually the first ones to use the twin motors and the first one to be the army them with torpedoes. Uh, are the French, the uh, Nordenfeld 1, 2, and 3 the, from the Swedish. So th- there's improvements. But I said one of the bigger improvements comes in the 1880s when you have electric battery technology. College come, right. It comes to the uh, – to the forefront where they can use as a propulsion system for when it goes under water. So they're going to use diesel fuel and diesel engines where they're above water to charge their batteries, and then they'll use the batteries under the water. It's this diesel electric is still actually common in a lot of submarine designs today. It's countries that don't have nuclear power. They use this combination of diesel and electric power.
0: Yeah. So the one that really propels us forward, well, there's a Polish guy that his name is Stefan Javiecki. Uh, In 1881, he's the one that constructed the world's first submarine. He did it for Russia at the time because Poland doesn't exist on the map. You know, that's all another issue. We talk about different history. But his design was what you said, this idea of like, let's have an electric battery technology. Like, it's cool to propel it forward when it's around water, but you want it to go below water, which is where you add these batteries. But the guy that kind of perfected this shortly thereafter is John Philip Holland. I'm sure you saw this. The Irish-American engineer is credited with designing the Holland submarine in late 1800s. His USS Holland, SS-1, was first real, like, modern... Uh, Submarine commissioned by the United States Navy in exactly the year 1900, and it incorporates several innovative features that distinguish from early submarines. One of the key features was the internal combustion engine, and his engine initially was powered by just gasoline uh, when it surfaced. It was not yet powered by diesel fuel. That was like the advancement on this model. But first one was gas. And the engine provided greater range, obviously, when it's above water versus Hundley and all these other ones were cranked, you hand cranked. This is a true propulsion gasoline engine. And then Holland Submarine had a dual propulsion system because of the fact that it did have this battery that essentially moved it forward. It's like a hybrid propulsion system. It is considered the USS Holland 1900, the first modern submarine and a huge milestone in naval warfare. Basically, from that point forward, they're like, yeah, they you know, become Holland, part of it. Yeah, and Holland's Submarine laid like, the foundation for modern submarine design technology, not just in the U.S., but it paves the way for widespread adaptation of his ideas of submarines by navies around the world.
1: And they still weren't great. Like, we want to also stress that. like The inside, the quarters were very cramped. They were usually wet, and they, they smelled of diesel fuel. So it wasn't like fun being inside of these things at all, obviously. But our, by this point, by 1900, most of the world's um, navies included submarines in their fleets, but they were small the, the crafts were small and it the countries still were very question about the military value and whether they were actually like um, they were really just going to be used for coastal operations but they couldn't go deep because of their limitations that kind of changes though when World War I breaks out right yep, yep so you have what's going on there it's actually the Germans they don't they have a small fleet they basically only have about when war breaks out they have about 20 u-boats. I saw that. To,
0: Britain yeah, that, had 74 or something. Britain had
1: 74. Germany only has 20, but Germany's building many more. And they just realized, listen, we're never going to be able to build enough surface fleets to compete with Britain. That's just not happening. Yeah. But we can build enough U-boats to compete with Britain. So they just basically create undersea warfare as we know it um, and basically use it, it very well to attack particularly the, the merchant fleet of um of Britain to just to cut off all those cargos. They could carry cargo. They were fast for the time for what they were, right? And they were fitted with torpedo tubes and deck guns. They were pretty formidable and they were impossible way really to find because they, there was no sonar yet, right? Yeah, so they, guesswork, completely. Yeah, guesswork. it was just guesswork. You you drop depth charges in and stuff like that. As these start getting bigger and better, they really start causing a lot of damage to the uh to the British fleet. And we all know what happens too with that when they start practicing unrestricted submarine warfare. It's really, though, where for World War I, where the Germans are the most successful, is in the high seas, which no one would, would think that at the time.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com and even just how quickly they went through this i mean u one the first ever german u boat like cuz at first germany was kind of reluctant to do this but the first ever u boat the u1 is not constructed until 1906 right by 19 like 12 13 14 started world war 1 as you said they only have 20 and then only then when the war starts do they start really building the u19 class which is the first time they're adding diesel engines Diesel engines basically give them a lot more
1: distance. Yeah. You actually get them to go far. They they weren't coastal weapons anymore.
0: No. And then, so just how quickly, in like six, seven years, these guys just build up their entire fleet and their entire premise here was, was designed on these wolf packs, right? I'm sure you saw this, yeah, which they really kind of perfected even more so in World War II. When the Germans are utilizing these U-boats, it is the primary reason for the U.S. entrance into World War I is, as you mentioned, this unrestricted submarine warfare. The issue here is that the United States is sending tons, and I mean tons, of supplies to Britain and France. And the issue here is that we're not sending these supplies for free. We these are materials, war materials, food, uh, you know, even cans of food, name it, everything. Yeah, people are getting rich
1: off of it, absolutely.
0: Exactly. People are getting rich off of it. And every time that German U-boats sink American ships, and they do this because they want to obviously prevent their enemy, aka Britain or France, from yeah, getting any of the yeah,
1: Because Remember, in the land warfare, it's it's just a stalemate. That's it. By this point, it's it's a stalemate, you know, no man's land, no one's really gaining any territory. But where the Germans are winning is they're winning in the ocean, right? They're winning in the seas and they're trying to starve the, Brit- the Britons out or the European, the rest of Europe out by not getting them these supplies they need from the United States. If they can't get those, Germany feels like they can win the war.
0: First of all, they would sink all these things. And American, every time a ship sunk with American cargo on it, American businesses lost money. When American businesses started losing enough money, they start pressuring different congressmen from their various states, which leads to more pressure in Congress on even President Wilson to bring the U.S. into World War One, But the way these guys worked, as I mentioned before, these wolf packs, which they perfect later on, it's basically the idea that you would have one submarine that would, they would send these submarines out and they would look for merchant ships going to and from England. The one submarine would follow the actual convoy and right away signal to other submarines like, all right, these guys are coming. And then all these guys would basically go to this one beacon, the original submarine that found the convoy. And they would follow as like a wolf pack, uh, a given convoy, British ships, but they would wait until nighttime to fire upon them because what they would usually do is they would surface before they fired.
1: And it was extremely successful.
0: Yes, 100%. And this is really where the German U-boat, like it's funny because it's like become synonymous when you think, oh, U-boat, it's like a submarine. All submarines are U-boats. But a U-boat is very specific to the German type of submarine at the time, right? Did you find yeah, there's
1: specific? Well, there was, it's just their design. But you see a lot more in World War II. It's a, it's a very different design uh, that the Germans are using, different from what the French, British, Jap- uh, Japanese, and Americans are using. German U-boats were faster. They were bigger. They were, they were better. For, yeah. At this time, even early World War II, they were better. The difference was is this, particularly when America gets involved in the war, we could just make so many more of them, and the tra- and our um, crews were much highly, much more trained, trained than anything trained, that yeah. the that the uh, Germans were able to do at that time.
0: Did you notice so, that in between when I was looking at like the interwar period is also when you have different testing of various U-boats? They're like, oh, let's make a U-boat that could carry an airplane. Was the Japanese try to do right during World War II. They wanted to create, like, aircraft-carrying... U-boats, Airplanes, yeah, that would
1: carry, well, not a lot. I mean, only a couple of planes, three, yep. four planes at the most. But the idea, especially towards the end of the war, they would use those to... Um, they actually did build them. That they would did. drop yeah. um, radioactive, not not nuclear bombs, but radioactive dirty bombs, basically, on the United States. If you go back and listen to some of our um, Hitler episodes, they, we, that, that the idea is one of is conspiracies that Hitler escaped Germany in one of those flew yep. that plane to Argentina, and that's where he lived out his days. So, yeah, something, they, something. they were built.
0: They were built. Yep. No, you could see pictures of them. They're pretty cool. Um, all right, so let's get into World War II, which is really, I feel like, the shining moment of well, submarines. Yeah.
1: Submarine warfare I, I, with this type, right? With wolf packs. Basically, you had the battle of the Atlantic, which was yep. going on, which always had the German submarines were fighting up against the Allied convoys. And it was part of the war that was really kind of a continuation of World War I in a lot of ways. A lot of the British submarines in particular, um, in the Mediterranean, Norway, were fighting against like the, um, that's where they were fighting against the Axis warships. Um, Hitler ordered submarines to do whatever they want. It was unrestricted submarine warfare, so they attacked in those wolf packs. Extremely successful until the Allies came up with the idea of the convoy system themselves, which the escorts and sonar obviously was able to make U-boat losses unacceptable. But, um,
0: But I saw the German U-boats were some of the first ones to actually develop advanced um, sonar.
1: sonar. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Well, they said Type uh, 7 and Type like 9 U-boats were amongst the most prolific submarines of the entire Mm -hmm. war. Those are the German ones. And they were equipped with not only just super-tuned diesel-electric propulsion systems, way more advanced torpedo armaments than anything that was made by the British or Americans. And they had these upgraded sonar systems that they were able to detect enemies you know, various targets all over the place. You have these also extended patrols because you had a development of larger submarines during World War II. So a much larger submarines meant increased fuel capacity. So now you have fuel capacity and provisions that allow for extended patrols. So some of these U-boats would literally just like, they would operate really, really far from their home bases, right? They would just... Oh, go out
1: for they would go out for... Months. Just months. Kind of go the them, yeah. Right? And just, yeah, and just prey on merchant shipping. That's basically what the Americans did, too, when it came to the Japanese. So the, in the Atlantic, the merchant fleets were able to, like, with the convoy system, depth charges, sonar, were able to fight back, right? Mostly because the Germans couldn't keep the numbers up. In the Pacific, the situation was definitely reversed because the U.S. submarines were hunting the Japanese constantly. By the time the war was over, the U.S. submarines destroyed over half of all Japanese merchant ships, about over 5 million tons of shipping is what was going on. So it was they were very successful. Was basically just, like, Unrestricted submarine warfare and starving out Japan—all the things we didn't like that the Germans were doing in World War One—and then later on in World War Two, we were doing against Japan just times ten, you know, towards the end of the war.
0: We should also mention like what a convoy is i mean the idea here is that merchants the key is to bring merchant ships to travel across the atlantic right you want to bring in goods weapons uh supplies whatever you need and initially in world war one they would try to send these merchant ships out by themselves sometimes they would arm merchant ships by placing guns on them even the famed lusitania was actually carrying a lot of weapons in its hull, right when it was sunk uh so the idea of convoys Consisted of dozens, if sometimes even hundreds, of merchant ships, but they were all escorted by smaller number of naval vessels for protection. So you would have these escort ships that provided this protection to the convoy by like patrolling the perimeter, and these were armed with depth charges and so on and so forth. And they would basically conduct
1: these anti-submarine sweeps. They would be surrounding the uh, merchant ships, protecting the cargo ships, and they were yeah,
0: yeah. and They um, had they, employed they, they, depth they charges. Yeah, They're basically hunting
1: the submarines. So the hunter yep. became the prey. And it yep. was very successful because of the, just, just the sheer number of them. And the submarines couldn't get close enough because then they would pick up their being picked up on sonar. Wait, the so, like I said, the plus it was depth
0: like charges, head, um, hedgehog mortars, anti-submarine weapons. They would just like go out and start like blowing things up in the water yeah. before the merchant ships. So like, you're right. No one could get close to yeah, them. Any sort of
1: damage to a submarine it could be fatal. Like you get a yep. hole in the submarine you're done. like it's not it's it's not fixing those sorts of things. so they had to keep their distance and stuff and it just uh, and eventually they just get to a point where the Germans just can't keep up the production of all the ones that were being lost. And by yep. the war's end, there's still German submarines out there. I know a couple of them don't come back until after the war is over, but they can't really do much.
0: I have a cool story too. I'm not sure if you saw this that the British submarine HMS venture and the German submarine u eight six four. Uh, That was the only
1: time two submarines fought against each other, right? And sank. uh, One submarine sank
0: another one, yeah. So in February 1945, World War II is almost done, more or less, right? A British Royal Navy HMS Venture was in patrol in the North Sea off the coast of Norway, and a German submarine, U-864 was then route to Japan. This was actually really important because Japan is still, again, the world's not over. It's going to be over for Germany in like three months, but for Japan, you know, six months maybe or so. So this particular German U-boat is carrying to Japan advanced military technology and experts. And this included really Messerschmitt engineers and crucial materials for the development of jet engines and rockets. So this was a, a U-boat that literally had rocket and jet engine specialists on it specialists not one like specialists on it trying to help japan and on february 9th of 1945 the hms venture detects this u-864 on sonar and pursues the enemy submarine you know there's risks to it obviously but they're like we're gonna do this so the two submarines engage in this tense underwater cat and mouse chase both attempting to outmaneuver and evade one another and you see this in movies hollywood movies of like you know, U-boats and submarines going against each other. But this actually is the only time that you have an actual battle between two submarines Submarines. ever, literally the only one. So the British one winds up tracking the U-864's movements, relying solely on sonar readings and just calculations to predict where it's going to be, its course and position based on what they knew. And after several hours of pursuit, the British positioned the HMS Venture for this calculated attack. They figured out where... The German U-boat's going to be, and they got ahead of it. So, anyway, here we are. The German U-boat's coming, and the British sent out four torpedoes. They just spread them out and fired four torpedoes, and they homed in on the U-864 striking and sinking a German submarine with a direct hit. And it was the first and only recorded instance of one submarine sinking another underwater in combat. But more important, this was a significant blow to the Nazi effort as well as the Japanese effort because of all the valuable technology, materials, and personnel that was bound for Japan on this particular U-boat. Like the British guy didn't have to follow it, you know, and he's like, um, ah, let me just see what I could do. The wreck of this U eight six four was discovered in two thousand three off the coast of Norway, and it totally confirms the historical account of like how it was sunk, where the torpedoes hit. Kinda of crazy. Cool story though.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? I guess it's one of those things that, like, goes down in history. It probably doesn't get talked about, but it's still important, particularly when we talk about, like, naval history. Um, so, yeah, just to continue, I guess, I guess. right? Yeah, post-war. Yeah, post-war. We saw how successful, obviously, um, they were. And in the post-war, World Submarines, both sides are still upping submarines. We're not going to get too much into it. But basically, like we said, nuclear power really changes a lot of this. They were used to a certain bit in Korean War, the India-Pakistan War of um, – 1971. The Falklands War actually has a um, distinction because it's the um, only time in history where a submarine sinks a battleship. The HMS Conqueror is Mm -hmm. the only nuclear-powered submarine to have engaged an enemy ship with torpedoes. It sank the uh, cruiser General Belgado during the 1982 Falklands War, so that's the first time that ever happens. You
0: could check Uh, back in our podcast
1: uh, on the Falklands War, which was really kind of just one-sided back and forth. What happens at this point, too, is when this larger these submarines are getting much bigger, and they can go underwater a lot longer. And their larger size allows them to basically become underwater missile launching platforms. And that's that's when they become a game changer, where they can actually launch missiles, eventually nuclear, nuclear, missiles. nuclear missiles from under the water, which is just a game changer because now it's it's undetectable, right? Yep. So it's this, and I believe the United States has the most nuclear subs right
0: or am i wrong with that i don't remember no the nuclear well, i mean obviously u.s and soviet union but new united states i think surpassed soviet union post cold war at this post point. Cold war. so really the two main submarine countries right now are not to say that other countries don't have submarines then most of them do but the two main producers of submarines i should say are the united states and uh and soviet union so yeah,
1: I, don't, I don't know how, how close it is but um just because I, I was reading quite a bit, like the United States keeps on building bigger ones. The biggest ones we ever built were the Ohio class submarines at about 506 feet. They were the largest ones the U.S. ever built. The Soviets actually built something that NATO called the Typhoon class submarine. Um, none of them are in use today. They completed six of them um, and uh, they're all retired by 2020, if not sooner. And they were actually 574 feet long. They could hold 160 people. Um, but what Russia has now is a new type of submarine that um, known as the Belgrade submarine, and what that carries supposedly is something called the Poseidon system. I don't know if you okay. heard about this. Nope. It's a it's a if you Google it online, it, it's basically known as Putin's doomsday submarine. Right? These are submarines okay. that are like always going around, like kind of like ready just in case you know something happens. Okay. And what the Poseidon Dunesay weapon basically is, that it's it a nuclear weapon that will go off and cause a radioactive typhoon, sixteen hundred feet high, and they will like it can wipe out like coastal cities and stuff like that. That's basically what it's called. And it became a big deal in 2022 because apparently it became um, it was uh, missing for a while. So there was a lot of talk right. about like what happened to it, but then it was detected in January of 2023 in the Arctic. So that's what it is right now. It's like a kind of this cat and mouse game where the Americans and the Russians, or was Soviets, not the Russians, are always, like, trying to find where your subs are and then tail them for a little bit, and you always try to find them and stuff like that because they're just so... You need to know where your enemy subs are because if there is going to be, like, a conflict, those subs can just launch those missiles from anywhere and then mm-hmm. hit any cities. So they are always trying to find out where each other's are, and that's where it becomes... Um, apparently, the U.S. Seawolf is the most dangerous submarine from what I was able to see. Okay. Simply... Simply because they are the quietest, the Seawolf class. So they are this was produced in 2024 when they talked about this. Basically, the US said we have to make sure we have not just a edge over the Soviets, but a huge technological edge over them when it comes to this. And it's incredibly quiet. Like you can that's the whole
0: key. Underwater. Like to yeah. they say that's advanced stuff. Stuff technology is yeah. literally minimize any acoustic signature whatsoever.
1: Because that's what they're doing. If you ever watch the submarine movies, too, they're always trying to listen. For any sort of like pings from from sonar, but also like noises. And they're going to run into other things too. They remember there's whales out there. There's going to be other sounds out there, other commercial boats and stuff like that. But apparently, the um, the Seawolf class is almost silent. And that's, that's just crazy. what it's being like, what is known. And it can cruise at about 20 knots. That's like, um, but it's, it's they said it's virtually impossible to locate while it's moving because it's just going too fast, too quiet. You're just not going well, to be able to. Track also, I mean,
0: it. The sheer fact that they have self-sustaining power sources in nuclear reactors right now. Yeah, the, on only reason they, the only
1: reason they come up is for food and morale. Yeah. Because people at some point get kind of like, you know, being stuck in this unpressurized tube underwater. And there's been a lot of accidents. I don't want to gloss over this. Particularly in 1968, there were several submarine accidents on both sides. The Khrushchev, I think, is the most famous one for the Soviets. But there's been a whole bunch of um, submarines that just sink you know explosions that take place and stuff like that as this technology was being perfected you don't really see too much of them now but
0: nuts well I mean I, I don't I don't really have much else on submarines I mean there's a, a lot we kind of skipped a lot too obviously we, we, tend we to skipped do that. a lot
1: too but it's one of but, those things where like it's it, it changed warfare particularly when during the cold War the submarines were like major factors like we can't emphasize that enough they wouldn't still be around if they weren't effective but they became like a whole different weapon in itself where they have those um under, underwater launching missiles, the, the Poseidon missiles and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And uh, we kind of failed also in World War II. You have a lot of those mini-subs like midget submarines. And- oh, that's what
1: the, they were trying to break into Pearl Harbor.
0: Remember? Yep. They, they they found Pearl it Harbor. Yep. And then also the Italians used a lot of them, the mini-subs uh, during World War II. And today's submarines, there's also research submarines, uh, specialized yeah, yeah. submarines. We, we were, we're talking research. about military
1: ones. There's research submarines that actually went down all the way into the Marianas Trench, I believe, right? Yep. And they found a plastic bag down there.
0: <laughs> I mean, so, again, submarines are used not just by warfare, but also, you know, other research facilities as well. And there are some fun facts. I mean, again, um, about them. I mean, I started looking up and some of the stuff that, was considered, that were considered fa- facts, they were just facts. You know what I mean? Like, like, like once I saw is all new submarines have a dining facility on board because it's essential for maintaining crew morale and well-being while
1: at sea. Yeah, because they
0: want to keep them it like submerged as
1: long as possible. So you either have those sorts of yeah amenities yeah. in there.
0: Yeah, sort there's like a mess hall and there's like a TV there and like you can watch DVDs like you're underwater. Um, yeah, so I don't think they're getting
1: Wi-Fi down
0: there, yeah. But also the submarine crews apparently undergo intensive training and certification just to be able to like be down there because there's such complex vessels now. They have these like crazy simulated emergency drills that can make it seem like they're about to drown and like they freak these people out to see how they handle the situation.
1: It's got to be a special breed of person to, that want to want to do that. Yeah, no, no, can't do that, but also would want to, you know, like right. be in a pressurized tube, thousands of feet under the water, like looking for the enemy in another pressur- pressurized tube, you know, nuts, nuts.
0: Well, anyway, I think that pretty much covers our uh, foray into uh, submarine warfare. So, as always, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to listen to this podcast. We totally appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Make sure you guys leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast if you like us. Tell your friends. We're always around. And make sure you email us and reach out to us on social media. See you guys next week.
1: Stay safe, everybody.
0: Everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.